we are called by the Lord, all of us are called to influence the people around us, uh, particularly the circle of influence in Facebook or whatever medium you're watching on is a great circle of influence. Great opportunity, simple way to evangelize people. And if you share the stream, you're doing more evangelism than most Christians will do in an entire year. So I uh, just want to encourage you to do that. And uh, we're going to talk about God's love. We were going to do a Q&A this morning, but my wife has an engagement this afternoon, and she did not want to miss out on the Q&A action. And I think you all would benefit very much from hearing how, what Sherry, she's like amazing. So uh, particularly ladies, if you got questions about relationships, my wife is like a dynamo. So I'm, I'm setting her up and then Hopefully she won't be like Cindy Brady and stare at the camera, which she won't, believe me. Uh, but she's amazing. So next week we got Q&A on uh, dating, marriage, and sex. And if there's anybody out there that has questions relating to dating, marriage, and sex, you can email us at elevatemiamichurch at, uh, at gmail, and we'll put them on the list. So we've got a whole two pages of questions back there. So there's a lot of stuff coming in, so we're really grateful about that. But um, we're, our series is Love in the Apocalypse, and it's like relationships in a crazy world. And today's Valentine's Day, right? Anybody know anything? They're like, what? Yes, it is. So dudes, if there's any single guys here, and you've been thinking about making a move, today's a pretty good day to make a move. You're actually kind of couched in the, in the movement, man, you know, because it's like, oh, I was just trying to say happy Valentine's Day. I didn't really mean anything by that, you know? And if she reacts to you, well then, hey, you're in the game too. So it's a great day to make your move. Um, Valentine's Day is, a, I just give you a little history of Valentine's Day. It's very interesting. So a lot of, we need, a lot of our holidays, a lot of the Christian holidays were an attempt in particular by the Catholic Church to redeem pagan holidays. So the pagans were all blowing it up, oons, 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 you know? And so the, the Catholic Church at the time was looking at this going, how do we get rid of, how do we get these people to stop doing the crazy things they're doing? And how do we put Jesus into, or Christianity, into these pagan festivals? Um, so it sounded like a pretty good idea. So just so you know, um, uh, we need holidays. So Jesus wasn't born on Christmas. What? The next thing you're going to tell me is Santa Claus isn't real. No, no one knows when Jesus was born. The Bible doesn't give us a definitive date. We have an understanding. Most believe he was born in the fall or the winter. It's perfectly acceptable to have a day that the church honors because the Bible makes no definition. Nor was he resurrected on Easter. That we know. Uh, Jesus was crucified on the 15th day of the month of Nizan, the Jewish calendar Nizan. The, the festival of Easter is actually the fist, uh, well, Christmas is, was designed to go into the Roman festival of Saturnalia, and Easter was into the festival of Ishtar. So you get an understanding. Uh, but there, the attempt here was to redeem these holidays. And watch this. Watch what happens with Valentine's Day. So where did Valentine's Day come from? Well, it was a Roman festival called Lupercal. Right? And so you say, what does this have to do with it? It's just humor. Just, just relax. Have a Cinnabon. It's all good. Right? So Lupercal was a day they celebrated on the 15th of February. And uh, the Romans believed that their, their ancestry came from two orphaned boys that were raised by wolves. Right? And so that's where the word lupa, looper or lupa, it's like wolf. So wolf was a big icon within the Roman, Roman uh, analogy. And so they would celebrate the founding of Rome by having a festival called Lupercal. Ready? Dudes, you're going to love this. So they would, they would uh, make blood sacrifices, and they would take strips from the animal hide, and they would dip the, the animal hide in the blood, and they would give it to all the available men. 
right? So all the single dudes, you got a strip with, dipped in blood, and you're supposed to do, go full Monty, right? You're supposed to streak through the town, full Monty sprint through the town, and you're supposed to find women and smack them with the bloody... This is where the word hitting on women comes from. I don't know if you know that. Literally, this is where it comes from. He's hitting on me. That's what it meant. So comes from this. That's true. It's true. I'm telling you. And so the, and some, of the, some women, they believed it was fertility or whatever, and it'd be like, hey, baby. Hey, how are you? Smack, you know? So that was kind of like how it, it came about. Um, so it, 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 this, this was going on for like a long time. And so there was a pastor that was actually uh, executed on February the 14th. And uh, this was years before. Uh, so 200 years after the guy was dead, the, the, the Catholic Church is kind of trying to figure out, well, how do, we, how do we get involved here? How do we change this? And they realized that there was a pastor who was executed on the 14th of February, and he was executed because the emperor at the time, his name was Claudius, he was forbidding people to marry because he realized that single men made better soldiers, right? So he was, had this forbidding that they weren't allowed to marry, and so this pastor was actually marrying people against the consent of Rome. And so, of course, Rome being the nice people that they are, they killed him. So they executed him. And then also, the night before he dies, he sends a letter uh, to the woman that he loved, and he said, and it simply said, from your Valentine. So this is kind of where these traditions come from, right? So he sent a letter to his betrothed or whoever she was, I don't even know. But so that's where the whole Valentine's note comes from or card. And so what they did is they took this guy, Valentine, and they put him on the day before this Lupercal, the day before Lupercal, because again, they're trying to redeem these festivals, right? These, these are things that are ingrained within this culture. This is stuff that they've been doing for a long time, and they had a hard time. That's why a lot of times when you see Catholicism, it has a lot of mixture of paganism in it, right? Worship of saints, you know, oh, hey, you don't have to give up the worship of the saint you just, or the worship of that God. A lot of the saints are just a, a reinvention of the old gods that they worshiped. may not like it, but it's true. And so that's not Orthodox Christianity. That's more Catholicism that did that. But a lot of these holidays come out of these places. And so they instituted it. We need holidays. They need to remind us. So Valentine's Day is a good day. We need to be reminded to love somebody, right? I mean, ladies, we would never get, we wouldn't have a clue, right? You should thank Jesus that there's actually a day that forces us to recognize our love for you. Uh, yeah, I know. It's hard, isn't it? It's really hard. Most All the guys know exactly what I'm talking about, right? They know exactly what I'm talking about. I was watching this comedian a couple weeks ago, and uh, he was, uh, this woman goes, my husband always forgets my birthday, and he said, and she goes, what do you think I should do? And he goes, buy yourself a car. Take him out in the driveway and say, look what you bought me. said, he won't forget next year. So ladies, if, if you're married and your husband forgets Valentine's Day, that's okay. You just go out and buy yourself something, walk yourself, walk in with a new ring on your hand and go, look what you bought me for Valentine's Day. <laughs> he won't forget next year. He was gonna be like, what, it was Valentine's Day? So there's no greater, there's no, so it's, it's a day that's focused on love and, and, and adoration of love and there's no better day to talk about God's love than today, right? Human love is one thing, God's love's a whole other, it's a whole other realm. You know, it says, beloved, let us love one another for God is love. Bible says God is love. God is love. And we have this dissociative understanding of God because we think, well, if a loving God is this and a loving God is that, we don't understand what love actually is from the Bible's context. Bible means, when it says that God is love, love in biblical terms is a Greek word, agapeo, and it means to seek the highest good. 
It's not an emotional experience. We seem to be our theme for the last couple of weeks. God's love for you is not an emotional experience. God's love for us is to find our highest good. He's looking at you not enthralled romantically with you or even having this emotional encounter with you as to how just wonderful you are to him. He, he has feelings for us. The Bible tells us he has feelings, but his love is not based upon emotion. His love is based on intention. So he sets his affections on us. He looks at you and his love for us is what is the highest good that I can give you? What is the, how can I benefit you? What can I do in your life? The greatest example of this is John 3.16. For God, what? So love the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This is an interesting thing. God loves the world, right? So in context of what I just said, what is God doing? He's looking at the world and he's saying, how can I benefit this lost world? Well, the greatest benefit that the lost world can have is to return to Jesus, to come back to their maker, right? So God's looking at the world, giving his son for the world because that is their highest good. It also tells us that God's love's corporate, but God's love's personal. God so loved the world that whosoever, your name's in the Bible. I don't know if you knew that. You're a whosoever. Say, man, my name was, I'm Nate, my name's not in the Bible. Sure it is. You're a whosoever. Whosoever. So God's love is corporate for all of humanity. His intention is the highest good for all of humanity, and his intention is the highest good for you individually. That whosoever. So God has a corporate aspect to his love, and he has a personal one. He knows you. He knows you. He forms you in your mother's womb. There's no one like you. You're an original creation. No two fingerprints, nothing. Everything about you is original and unique into you yourself. Nothing like you. No one ever like you. No one's ever been like you before you. God made you, and you're unique. We're fallen, and we're broken, and we're separated, and we have to come back to him because of our own stupidity, but God's love for us is corporate, and it's individual. It's like, well, God loves everybody else. No, Jesus loves you. He loves you. Warts and all, he loves you. Past, present, and future. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows what? Everything. Well, God doesn't know everything about me. Yes, he does. He knows everything about you, and he chooses to love you. When you don't know Jesus, the Bible says he loves us from afar. I love you from afar with an everlasting love. Even the sinner, even those who deny God and don't want to come to Christ or never want to give their life back to Christ, God's love is still for them. He is still trying to work them into his good and for their good. So what's God's work in the unbeliever? So the work God's, work, God's love working in the unbeliever is to bring them to Jesus. That's what the unbeliever needs. The unbeliever doesn't need a new car. The unbeliever needs to come to Jesus. You understand? The unbeliever doesn't need purpose and destiny. The unbeliever needs to come to Jesus. In the life of the believer, God's love is doing, the, is doing the second phase, which is to bring you into purpose and destiny. God is working in your life to get you to align with who you are. That's what's going on. So it's like bumper car. You're going off the, he's trying to bump you onto this path because you're created on purpose with a purpose. You have a purpose. And the purpose is not what you think. The purpose is much better than you think. Right? So this is what's going on here. And so here's some facts. We've got to understand this. If we're going to understand God's love, then we've got to understand the facts. All are under sin. That's a fact. It's a fact. Not popular subject in the American church. Sin. I said it. Sin. So here's what it says. Galatians 3, chapter 22, or verse 22 says, but the scripture declares that all are under sin. Red, yellow, black, and white. Tall, skinny, hairy, bald, whatever, doesn't matter who and what you are, all are under sin. 
And the promise of faith through Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. So the Bible declares us to be under sin, and it shows us here's where you are, here's where you need to be. In order to get out of where you are, you need to take the promise that's offered to you in Jesus Christ. There's no other option. There's no other offer. The offer is in Christ alone. It says those that are under sin are under the power of the condemnation of the devil. So those, so the Bible's saying this. The world is under sin. All of us are born under sin, and sin is under the devil. So you want to know what the hierarchy is? Devil, sin, judgment. That's what it looks like. And we're under that. We're all born under that. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The world is under the... If you don't know Jesus, you're under the power of the devil. You say, I don't believe that. It doesn't matter what you believe. The facts are, the facts are, and there's nothing you can do to change that other than surrendering your life to Christ and coming under his lordship. The only one superior to the devil in the spiritual realm is Jesus, just so you know. You are not superior to the devil apart from Christ. In Christ, he's your footstool. In Christ, he's, you know, he's your, I don't know what you want to call him, but he's, he's nothing. You have authority over him in Christ, but without Christ, he rules and reigns. He comes in and comes and goes as he pleases in the life of the unbeliever. The whole world is under the sway of the evil one. So all are born under sin, and that and sin is under the devil. God never judged Adam, so let's just be clear, right? God's judging man. Show it. Can't show it. When Adam fell, God never judged Adam. There was no judgment placed upon Adam. Cursed is the ground for your sake. And he says, and he tells Eve, she wasn't cursed either, that the childbearing is going to be your difficulty. There was never a curse placed upon Adam and Eve. The curse was placed upon sin. The curse was placed upon the devil. And because man and woman are under sin, and man and woman are under the devil apart from Christ, therefore they are under judgment. God doesn't judge man. God has judged sin, and he has judged the devil. And so long as we are under sin, and we are under the devil, we are under the judgment of sin, and we are under the judgment of the devil. You see how this works? Totally changes the dynamic. God didn't judge man ever once. He's not judging man. In the end, he will because he's going to have to separate the sheep from the goats, and he's going to go, okay, who's under Jesus? All right, everybody under Jesus over here. Who's under sin? Okay, all those under sin, oh, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And really what it comes down to, when you come for, this is what it talks about positionally. The Bible's very clear about being positional. Apart from Christ, you are positioned under sin, and you are positioned under the dominion of the devil. All sin is of the devil, and sin, devil and sin is judged, and I am under that, Right? By right of my birth through the line of Adam, therefore I am under judgment. When I come to Christ, I come out of darkness and come into light, and I come under something entirely different. I come out of that judgment, and I come under him. I don't even come under Jesus. I come into him. This is the language. So you are under sin, right, or in sin, so to speak, but the Bible gives it more the context of being under it, and then when you come to Christ, you come into Jesus. You're not even part of that. You're a completely different person. And so what happens is, is that God's, you, are now, you are now under God's love. You are now under God's righteousness. God doesn't even see you as you are. There's a positional shift in your life. It's very important. The positional shift that happens in the life of the believer. Your position has nothing to do with what's going on in your life. There's position, there's purpose, and there's destiny. When you come to Christ, you are positionally his. Nothing can separate you. You belong to him. I didn't say everything in your life was going right. I didn't say that there wasn't, you know, that all of these, you know, bells and whistles, Reader's Digest check at your doorway, you know, I don't know, you know, pinwheels. I didn't say confetti was blowing everywhere you went, but you belong to Jesus, and it's important that if you've given your life to Christ that you know that. It's important. You're his. 
You've come out of that. So what's this word judgment? This is going to give some people some really understanding because Jesus, listen, we have so much poor teaching in the church, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. (laughs) You know, do not take the Lord's name in vain. We actually profane the name and the nature of God by some of the things that we teach because we don't extrapolate the understanding far enough. (laughs) God's judged man, where? Where? Show me where. There's no judgment on man. Read the fall. Read what he said. He didn't put the judgment on man. Will he judge the living and the dead? Of course. But he's not judging on the basis. He's judging positionally. That's the first. There's a couple of layers to judgment when it comes to that, but the first judgment is the separation, and that's a positional judgment. Are you under Jesus or are you under sin? That's the simple separation. Then the unbeliever is judged individually upon the partnership of the sins that they carried. All of the sins of man will be accounted for. If you're a sinner and you come before Christ, all your sins laid bare, as Jack Sparrow or the guy was told in the movie. (laughs) Everything's going to be laid bare. If you're in Christ, you're separated, and all of the things that you did for him were rewarded. You're not judged on the basis of sin. The believer will not be judged on the basis of sin. We're judged on the basis of positionally in Christ, and then we're based upon the position of obedience that we did to follow him. There's nothing that will be judged in our lives of sin. Nothing. Nothing. It doesn't say that. There's no place where that says. Where does judgment come from? It comes from three Greek words. So again, you want to you understand the subject. You want to understand the subject matter. You have to look at not only the verses on the matter, but you have to look upon the root words and the words themselves. What does judgment mean? You're going to get a clear understanding of judgment. What is judgment? God's judgment. What is that? Next time somebody tells you about God's judgment, ask him to explain it to you. The judgment of God. Yeah, can you explain that? Because we say things and we don't understand what it means. So if we're going to say it, we should at least have an understanding. It comes from three Greek words, krino, krisis, and krima. You can see they're all rooted in the same way, what it is. Krino is a decree. Krisis is where we get the word crisis, so you'll understand this one, is a chain reaction of events, and krima is the finality. So when God places a judgment, he makes a decree that carries forth a chain of reaction and comes to a finality. Not all judgment is bad. You come to Jesus. He makes a decree over your life, does he not? You belong to him. Jesus claims you as his own. It initiates a chain reaction of events. Your life begins to tumble forward towards him, and it culminates with a finality of you now eternally his in possession of a redeemed body, and you have eternal life. So that judgment, that's, there's not all judgment is negative. When it comes to the believer, God makes a decree, or the unbeliever, when it comes to sin and, and, and the devil, he makes a decree, and there's a chain reaction to that decree, and it culminates in a finality. People that are under sin, their lives are tumbling in crisis, right? Our crisis or crisis isn't necessarily negative. We're tumbling towards a good goal. The unbeliever is has had a decree placed. So our decree, when Jesus, when you come to Christ, the decree over your life shifts and the tumbling of your life shifts. The unbeliever, the decree over their life is they're lost, they're hopeless and helpless, not because God says it's over them, but because God says it over the position that they're standing in. So their life is tumbling and ultimately it's tumbling towards an end that's destruction. That's the judgment that's upon sin. That's the judgment that's upon the devil. The judgment that's upon the believer is life everlasting. No one can say, listen, God's made a decree over your life. That's a good thing. I am judged, and I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, and nobody can take that away from me. Nobody. Happy day. If you're a believer, you should get excited that the judgment, the, the judgment that God, the decree that God places over your life is life and not death, blessing and not cursing. It can't be removed from you, right? 
So not all judgment is bad. Oh, the judgment of God. Well, what exactly is the judgment of God? Because I am judged in Christ Jesus, and I am redeemed, and I am judged as a son of the highest, and I am judged as an heir of this world and the one to come. I am seated in heavenly places. Why? Because the Lord says so. I didn't say so. He says so. He's made the decree. And the tumbling of my life is towards the understanding of that. My life is to create and to be operating in a, train, in a chain reaction towards the understanding of the decrees that have been made over my life. The chain reaction of my life is towards what God has said about me. And in doing that, take this on a lot of layers, we can take the finality out at the end of the age, or we can take the finality out in the terms of my life. The decree over my life, and as my life tumbles towards my identity in Christ, it will begin to create finalities in my life. And those finalities will be good things. Kevin knows who he is. Nobody's moving him off that mark. He's tumbled towards that place. Kevin now understands what it means to be seated in heavenly places. Kevin now understands spiritual authority. Kevin now understands the mandates and the purposes of God over his life. This is what our life, and so the decree over your life is to create and promote this chain reaction that brings you to this place. So I hope you understand what judgment is, right? And how, what this looks like. Church doesn't even want to talk about judgment. We have churches that don't want to talk about judgment or we want to walk around with a baseball bat you know, and beat people with it. We don't understand it. We need to understand what it is. We need to understand who's judged and why they're judged and what the situation looks like. You're judged. The devil can't accuse you positionally in Christ. You belong to him. No one can judge you. And so what happens here, right? So you guys understand that? So it's the initiation of a trained reaction that culminates in a finality. That's a way of understanding judgment. A decree creates a chain reaction and it ends in a finality. Judgment's not always negative. So let's talk about time, right? Let's talk about time. So there's different words in, Gre in Greek, and I've been I love to study time. I love to try to understand time. So here's the chain reaction, the tumbling of the chain reaction that God has begun to show me. So you have these different words in the Greek called time. So we have epoch. So the word epoch means period of time, right? That's what the word epoch means. We have the word chronos. Most of us understand this period of time. We understand chronos, the chronology of time, the marching of time. Then we have kairos. Kairos is the shifting of time. Kairos is a great word because it means in a moment everything shifts. So we have a God who is, we are under an epoch of time. We are under a chronos of time that time is marching forward. But we have a God that's able to shift your timeline. <laughs> we serve a God who's able to shift your timeline. Got a verse? I'll give you one. I could give you about probably seven or eight, but I'll give you one that's really clear. I will restore to you the wasted years. I would say that's a shifting of the timeline. <laughs> he will shift your timeline. You wasted something? Kairos, in a moment. In a moment, God will shift it to your favor. Say, there's nothing fair about that. That's right, nothing fair about favor. He will shift your timeline in your favor. He will redeem the wasted time. He will bring back the wasted years. He will cause you to be more fruitful in 10 than you ever were in the 20 before. That's who he is. That's kairos. Kairos is an amazingly powerful word. And here's this other word called nin. It means particle of time. So watch this. The Bible says this. Now is the judgment of this world, and now the prince of this world is cast out. So what happens is Jesus pronounces a finality upon the whole earth. He pronounces a finality upon the devil. He's getting ready to go to the cross, and he says, now this world can be judged. Why? Because the divine alternative is being presented. Now judgment is upon this word. And what he uses is he uses the word nin, particle of time. 
Anybody ever heard of the God particle? I don't know if you've ever heard of the God particle. So I think it's in Belgium. I don't know where it is. You've heard of it? Yeah, so they have this, they built this massive super collider. Billions of dollars are invested, and they're rushing these particles, these through, and they're colliding these particles, and they're believing that if they collide these particles and they can record the right moment, they're going to find the divine spark, the all spark that created the universe. So the world is got investing billions of dollars of their revenue to try to find the guard particle. The guard par- God particle is right here. It's called Nin. So when Jesus says, now is the prince of this world cast out, now is the judgment of this world, it's as if Jesus releases a particle into time. He makes a pronouncement. He doesn't shift time. He doesn't alter time. Kronos doesn't shift, but time itself now shifts because he just released the particle into the environment of time. Now is the judgment. He said, nin. And so this particle, this seed, the mustard seed, he sows the mustard seed into time. And so what's happened ever since the crucifixion and the revelation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that nin, that overarching, that 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 particle of time that he's released has begun to shift very much shift the atmosphere of time itself nin now is the judgment of this world god shifted everything that judgment there's more power in the church there's the power that was given to the church but the atmosphere of the of time itself is changing and it's more it's marching towards his defined end if you're aware of that say the judgment of this world the world's not judged yeah because he released the particle of time yeah, the prince of this world is cast out spiritually, but not eternally yet. But he has released the particle into time. Okay? He releases this. This is how God works. What's the basis of God's love? Why does God love us? Where, where does his love come from? Number one, it's who he is. You were created as the object of his affection. Angels were created to serve him. You were created to relate to him. He didn't, he didn't make you just so you could take out the trash. You understand? The angels were the administrators of his kingdom. They were created to administrate the realm of eternity and serve in time and space. That's why they were created. We were created to relate to him. Mankind was created as family. So that our, our relationship to him is entirely different. So you were created to be the object of his affection. God is love. He, if you, listen, love means nothing unless it has an object. Can I get a witness? You're going to be full of love. You guys want to get married? I'm going to give you a prayer. I'm going to give you a prayer. Ready? I used to pray, Lord, my heart is so full of love, you need to give me someone that I can give that love to, right? Do you just realize what just shifts in heaven when you say that? Because most people are thinking, Lord, I need that special woman for me and me alone. Just bring me my woman, Lord, the woman who will fulfill me intellectually and through my loins. Bring me that, bring me that woman. Or bring me the guy that will love me and will take care of my every whim and will just satisfy me at the deepest emotional level and I'll never be emotionally needy again because you've provided the man for me. You see the difference in the basis of what you're asking? You're asking towards yourself as opposed to asking towards another. Which prayer do you think Jesus hears? The one towards others. That's the one he hears. And so when you say, Lord, my heart is full, I need someone to give this love to. This is why God made you. Eh? He made you. He made you for that reason. It's because he's full of love and he needs an object of affection. You are his object of affection. But the problem is, is that God's love's not on our terms. This is where we get, well, if God loves me, then make, tell him to do this. Tell him to do this. He's not, he's not, he, dude, he's not your bellhop. Love is not on your terms. Love is not conditional to you. Love is conditional to him. 
We operate, but ladies, you would do well to do that, right? Ladies, you would do well to define the terms of love, right? Your love, listen, women have a high capacity to love. Your love's just not meant to be given anywhere, anytime. Women do very well when they define the boundaries of the relationship off the rip. You will do very, very well. Because if you don't define the boundaries of the relationship, it's just gonna go all over the place. God defines the boundaries of the relationship. This is what love looks like. If you want me, it's in this context. Ladies, you should get excited because that part of you doesn't come from you, it comes from your father. He made you like that. So don't you feel bad because you're defining the boundaries of the relationship. That dude needs the boundaries of the relationship. You're supposed to grow up and be, I'm talking about mature women here, okay? We, we you know. <laughs> Some women are crazy. Just as much as dudes are crazy, right? There's some, there's some crazy people out there, man. But a mature, Jesus-loving woman, let's put that out there, you would do well to define the boundaries of the relationship. If you want me, it looks like this. If you want what I'm offering, it looks like this. This is what it looks like. This is who I am. This is what I am. This is what it looks like. You would do well to define that because that's how God does. We think it's love on our terms. It's not love on your terms. That's narcissism. It's love on his terms. All things are yours, but we relate to him on the basis of, what he, of, of how he loves us. Benefits, why does God love us? Because it's in his nature. Because we're in his image. We're made like him. We are objects of his affection. That's what we are. That's who we are. And the third reason why God loves us is because he wants to. He wants to. Say it. Jesus loves me. Come on. Come on, say it. Jesus loves me. For no particular reason at all. That's right. He loves you just because he loves you. There's no reason to it. There's no rhyme to it. He looks at you and wants to benefit you and wants to bless you for no particular reason at all, other than the fact that he chooses to. That's mind-blowing. Why do you love me? Because I want to. Yeah? As David said, there's nothing in me that's desirable. There's nothing in me that's, that you would want if you're looking at it from God's eyes. He says, I love you because I want to. It's the word Adonai. means benefactor. It means Lord. The word Lord is Adonai, and it means to benefact, the one who watches over us to benefit us. When Jesus is Lord, we need to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm all in. What does Lordship mean? Let, again, let's define terms here, church. Let's define what does Lordship means. It means. Adonai means benefactor, the one who's watching over my life to benefit me because he wants to. So I surrender to his lordship. I surrender to the will of the one who was watching over me in order to benefit me. That makes sense, doesn't it? And when I understand that the Lord is watching over me to benefit me, I submit myself to the one who watches over me to benefit me. That shifts the whole understanding of lordship of Jesus Christ, right? If you understand him in militant terms and we need to surrender and submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ because he said so, that's fine. That's a very basic level of understanding. There's nothing wrong with that. I just choose to go a little higher. Let's just go a little higher. Let's elevate. Let's go higher. All right, so what are the benefits of God's love? This is good. So why does God love us? He loves us because of this. What are the benefits of his love, right? This is beautiful. Romans 8. And we know that all things work together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. The benefits of his love is that not everything is going to go right. And the benefits of his love is that God loves you so much that he's going to work it to your good. Do you understand that? Not everything in this world is going to go right. <laughs> broken people, broken choices, broken systems, broken world. Not everything's going to go right, but he puts a promise upon his people. 
that love him and come after him in his purposes, that I'm going to work everything out to your good. What this verse does for us, let's just say you just blow your house up. You just made the wonder bomb of wonder bombs. You just completely destroyed everything. Or let's put it another way. Something cataclysmic has just happened to you that's really just shaken your life to the core. We're going to extremes here, right, so that we can relate to this. And so what God is saying to you is I'm going to work it out for your good. That promise gives us hope to endure until he turns it around for personal victory. You understand? That's what that promise is for. God's love for us is saying, look, I knew you just burned your house to the ground. I knew you just blew it all out. I knew you just did something that you wish you could wind back. Anybody ever have anything you did that you're like, I wish I could have back about two weeks of time and I could roll that time back so that I could undo what I just did? Right? We, we, we should at least get one mulligan in life, but unfortunately we don't. We don't get a do-over. So we have things in our life that end up happening to us. We do things that are destructive to us and destructive to those that are around us. And the Lord said, look, I'm going to work it out for you. And you need to trust me. And you need to hold on to the promise while I turn it around for victory. You, you blow it up in 30 seconds, and we think Jesus is going to fix it in five. Look, dude, you, it took, you blew that up, and now God's got to move through time to fix that for you. But he will fix it. So good news, he's going to fix it. Good news, he's going to work it out. Good, bad, and ugly, he's going to bring it to, to the purposeful end that he does, and it's going to be pers- personal victory. It's a benefit of being of, of the love of God. The, listen, the world doesn't get this promise. The believer gets this promise. This is the Christian's promise. This isn't the unbeliever's promise. This belongs to us. What shall we say to these things? So not everything's going to go right. What shall we say to things, these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? What happens when you come to Christ? Well, first of all, what shall we say to these things? What does that imply? We're supposed to say something, right? I mean, we're, the, the American church is like, we're like, we're like monks. We never talk. Mm-hmm. Oh, we shout, we sing, all the, 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 whenever we're in the culture. But when it comes to the, the things of God, we say nothing. You're supposed to say something to your circumstances. You're supposed to speak life where there is death. You're supposed to say something. Let the redeemed of the Lord. That's right. That's right. Some of you would do good to let the world know you're a Christian, right? Come out of the closet. Today's the day. It's Valentine's Day, guys, and I'm coming out of the closet. <gasps> I just like the world to know that I follow Jesus. Closeted Christians, man. We're the most closeted culture. We don't want anybody to know we're Christians. How do you know? Look at some people's Facebook posts, man. Look at your social media. Does that testify of your life? Oons, 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 oons. You know, I mean, this is crazy. Let people know. Use social media as a witness, Christian, not as an indulgence. Use it to testify and woo those who are far from the Lord. That's what it's for. People go, I hate social media. Social media is a gift to this generation. The Bible commands us to reach the oikos. That's the circle of influence. You may not like social media, but Jesus wants you to use social media. You are commanded to reach a circle of influence. You may lose friends, or if they are your friends, you may lose people. You might lose some followers. Because you tell them, hey, look, man, I'm all about Jesus, or I love Jesus, whatever your context is. But Jesus needs to be in the narrative. <laughs> this pastor just fell, not to pick on people. The guy just fell, and I was showing Alex. I said, look at his Instagram. Not one thing on his Instagram about Jesus. You want to know why this guy fell? I go, let's look. Let's just scroll. Nothing. The guy's a pastor, right? Nothing on his page about Jesus. Look on Elevate Miami Church's Instagram page. Jesus. 
Jesus, Jesus. And if we haven't said it before, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So whatever your context is and whatever you gotta do, use what is available to you, the tools of the culture. You have an ability to reach people in your social media network that no one else can reach. You are friends or associated or connected to people that are further down the line and you are the only Jesus they may ever meet. Think about that one. Your responsibility isn't to get them to own the message. Your responsibility is to be a hope dealer. Be a hope dealer, just deal hope. Let your Instagram, your Facebook, whatever it is you use, I don't know, but just hope, 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 every day, hope, 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 hope. Why are you so hopeful? Jesus, hope, 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 Jesus, hope, 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 Jesus. I don't know what to share. I just told you. Hope, 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 Jesus. Hope, 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 Jesus. <laughs> what do we say to these things? We're supposed to say something. If God's for us, love becomes the ruling element of our lives. When you come to become a believer, God is for you. Who can be against you? The love of God is the ruling element in the believer's life. It doesn't mean that things don't come against you, but it means that what comes against you no longer has a vote as to the outcome. You need to understand that. Love is the ruling element in the believer's life. Whatever comes against you doesn't get to vote on what the outcome is. He turns the tables. He takes injustice and turns it into justice. He turns mourning into dancing. This is what he does. Say, <laughs> it's not fair. Nothing fair about favor, man. As a believer, say it with me. Love, the love of God is the ruling element of my life. Whatever comes against me, Whatever I'm going through doesn't get to vote on the outcome. Aren't you glad? To me, you need to worship, you know? You go through circumstances, you get decrees over your life, you get, you know, fired from a job, or you get relationships that just implode, nothing by nothing of divorces happen. And it's like that, and you're going through this terrible situation, and you're going to come out the other side better than you were before, because that circumstance doesn't get the vote on the outcome. Doesn't mean things don't come against you, and it doesn't mean you don't go through things. It's, it's not Pollyanna, you know? <laughs> we go through things, but we come out of it. And what is against you doesn't get the vote on your life, man. You should be happy. Happy day. Again, this is for the believer. If you don't know Jesus, I'm giving you the benefit package right today. This is, but wait, there's more. You mean I get saved? Yep, and wait, there's more. There's so much more. He that did not spare a son but delivered up from us, how we not freely give us all things. If God so sacrificially, abundantly, and generously provided for you, how will he not stop providing for you now? God's not going to provide for me. Who told you that? God's not going to take care of me. Who told you that? Who told you that? Who told you? Your Bible doesn't. It says right here. Oh, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. Who told you that? The one who did not spare his son, how will he not freely give you all things? Here's what it looks like. Willingly, joyfully provides for you all things. What does he give you? He gives you basic enjoyment. So let's talk about the provision of God. The provision of God isn't is according to your whims. Well, I want a Mercedes whatever with this and that, and I want this and that. It's not according to your whims. God's provision over his people, A, it begins with basic provision. I've been young and I've been old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their seed begging for bread. Lions do hunger and suffer lack, but the righteous will never be forsaken. You will, you're going to make it after all, in case you didn't know that. You're going to make it. As a believer, you will survive. Your Father will make sure of it. You will survive. You will have the, all of the basic provisions, all things that pertain to life and godliness will be given to you. 
basic provision is yours. But his abundant provision relates to the purpose in your life and relates to the destiny over your life. Again, let's look at words. The word is provision. Pro, for, vision. For the vision. God provides for the vision. You understand that? Not your vision, his vision. Our job is to get into concert with the vision that he has over our lives. And as we move towards that, God begins to give provision into the vision that is over our lives. This is how it works. This is why most Christians can't operate in the provision of God sufficiently is because you're asking God to give provision for your vision. He doesn't give provision for your vision. He gives provision for his vision. You understand that? It's hard. I mean, you say this in the American church and American Christians start freaking out. It does not compute. It does not compute. Because we preach an Americanized gospel. We don't preach a kingdom gospel. You know, and so we teach everybody these fairy tale things, these la 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 things, and they don't work. The kingdom works here at Elevate. The kingdom is working here. I don't know if you're aware of this. I just had a guy tell me, he said, I have never been in an environment like this where I have watched people be so abundantly blessed and transformed. He's told me that. You say, well, I don't understand. If you look around and you look at the testimonies, and we don't do a very good job of stewarding the testimonies, and so we're going to come forward. If we were to line up and we were to show you the testimonies, we could sit here for probably four hours and watch testimonies of people whose lives have been changed, who've been healed, whose provision, supernatural transformation, just all kinds of things that have occurred in their lives. Why? Why? Well, it's not, it's not some mysterion that I have. It's not my cologne, you know, or my cool hair, or my skinny jeans and smoke machines. It's about... The kingdom gospel. It's about bringing people into alignment with what God says. Not what you want. We're, this American church is trying to get God on their agenda. God's going to provide for the vision of your life. No, he's not. You could turn that on right now, and you're going to watch 50 preachers tell you that God's going to provide for the vision of your life. And I'm, you're just going to watch one right here going to tell you, no, he is not. He will not provide for your vision. He will provide for his vision. I didn't say he wouldn't take care of you. That's not what I'm saying. You will be provided for. You want the provision of God? You'll be amazed. All of a sudden, God, you begin to discover what God's provision is for you or what God's purpose is for you, and you begin to call on God for the provision as it relates to his vision, and watch what happens. His vision is that you raise children. Let's take it out of economics. You don't have a clue, just so you know. Anybody here raising kids, you don't have a clue. But God's vision for you is that you effectively lead those children and you develop. You say, I don't know how to do it. Lord, I need, I need provision for this vision. He'll give it. Anybody want to testify? You have no idea what to do with your children. And you ask the Lord according to those children and it comes to you. You get revelation. You're like, where in the world did this come from? Because it's provision for the vision. It's God's will that you have a healthy marriage. It's God's will that you love your wife as Christ loved the church. You have no clue how to do that. But it's his vision. And so when you go to the Lord and say, God, you got to help me love this woman, right? I'm all in to crucify her. I'm into that. But I'm not into the love thing, right? <laughs> but when you begin to ask the Lord how to love her and give her love and give him love, that the Lord put love in your heart for that woman, he will give you provision for that vision. Problem is we don't want to go to them. Women do the same thing. They get all ticked off. They build up all this anger and resentment of the man, whatever it may be. And so all they do want to do is nag and nip at his robe and cut him down and turn him into nothing instead of going to the Lord and saying, Lord, your will for my life is to honor this man. Your will for my life is your vision is that I orbit him with strength. Show me what is right with him. 
because all I can see is what's wrong. And you know what's gonna happen? You're gonna get a supernatural inclination, provided your marriage is in Christ, your relationship is in Christ, that's the big thing. Sometimes God's gonna go, I'm gonna give you a vision, get out of the relationship, right? But if you're married in Jesus, and it's God's will between two believers, let me put it in the proper context, and it's God's will for the two believers to be married and that there be fruit within the home. And ladies, if you're struggling to have honor for your husband and you're struggling to respect him the way God does, and you ask the Lord, he will provide. He will give a provision for the vision. We just need to stop this nonsense. So what happens? People have these, this is what, the, the church teaches this nonsense. And so people go, well, God's going to provide for the vision of my life. Here's my vision. And when he doesn't, then they turn around and claim that the gospel has failed. Well, the gospel never failed, and Jesus never fails. You failed. And whoever taught you that failed you. It's a failure of teaching. Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand this? Are you standing in front of my people telling them things that are not true? Listen, man, you shouldn't, you shouldn't swagger quickly into the pulpit. We got guys that want to swagger into the pulpit in this generation because they think they want to be a rock star. You know, I can look cool, you know? I mean, I don't know what the motivation is, but my motivation is to honor the one who put me here. You know? I mean, you better know what you're talking about before you go espousing things because you will account for them. If you misrepresent Jesus... You, whatever you're doing, albeit well-intended, you will account for your misrepresentation of him. We must represent him in the way that is contextual to who he is, not who we want. This is the, this is the this apostasy of the last days. Men will lay up for themselves teachers who will teach them what they want to hear. Well, that's what I want to hear. God's all about my vision. Oons, 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 you know. Well, who wouldn't want to hear that? Wait a minute, Jesus is going to help me get what I want? What? God will help you get what your, you want, provided your desires are rooted in him and not in you. That's a whole other story. The context of your drive and your heart must be in him. I want to succeed in business. Why? Why? And if you cannot answer that without putting that in context of the kingdom, it's not going to happen. I want a marriage. I'll give it another one. I want a marriage. I always ask people why. Why don't I want to be lonely? I'm like, you need to pick a better answer than that. Why? Because God is not going to give provision for that vision. He's not going to provide for a vision that's narcissistic and relates only to you. I'm telling you. I know it, I know it doesn't sound this is like, well, this doesn't sound good. But say this. Lord, I want to be married so that the, love, that the love that you put in my heart can be expressed to another person and that the love that you put in their heart can be expressed to me and that together we mutually can love you and that together we mutually can reflect your love in the earth and that together we mutually can bring forth your purposes in the earth. Some, form, some prayer in that context and you'll watch all of a sudden, it's as if Jesus himself turns and looks. Lord's up there playing Candy Crush because everybody's asking him, Oh, is that another selfish request? Whatever. Tell me when you get somebody that asks according to my will. It's true. If we ask anything, what? According to his will. According to his purpose. Not according to your will. We, we've circumvented so much of this stuff. It's the American gospel, I'm telling you. It really is. It really is. And you need, and you need to be aware of what's being taught. Because it's misleading. And there's a generation, particularly of millennials, that are being taught this type of stuff, that God's all about your vision. 
Who told you that? Your Bible doesn't say that. Seek first the what? Kingdom of God and what is right to him, not what is right to you, and then everything's going to happen. You get it? We don't do that. I, I watch it. I hear these people, and God, I've just given my vision to the Lord. I've told the Lord what I wanted for my life, and now I'm just believing and waiting for God to bring the provision into the vision that I've given him. Wrong answer. Won't happen. I'll be like, nah, you'll be gone in six months because it won't happen. And the, the enemy will lie, and it will just create this compound result that where people will just be left dismayed because they don't understand, because they have a false teaching. Just a thought. Who shall lay charge against God's elect? Right? So let me be clear before I like go like, what a false teaching. Listen, God's going to provide for you, but get on his vision. He said, I don't know what God's vision is. That's the art form, isn't it, Christian? That's the struggle. That's where we wrestle with God. Jacob what? Wrestled with the Lord. What was he wrestling over? Jacob was wrestling with God over his vision and God's vision. Read the context of what's going on there. Jacob wanted to run, and the Lord's like, this is not my vision for your life, Jacob. My vision for your life is that you go this way, but I want to run. And, he, and the Lord contended with him and tried to get him on vision the whole night. And finally the Lord said, the dawn is coming, I'm leaving. And then Jacob said, I will not leave, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And what was the blessing? He changed his what? His name. Name represented nature. So God is saying your problem is in your nature. You are a heel catcher. You are a usurper. You are one who always manipulates things back to himself. Now you will be called Israel, prince of God, one who does not follow the impulses of himself, but follows the impulses of his king. You see the shift? Jacob's whole life shifted when he got on God's vision. Read that guy's life. Jacob is, Jacob is a picture of people trying to pursue God their, way, their own way. And as soon as he began to wrestle with God, and it is a wrestling match, you're going to have to wrestle. What is your purpose for me? What is your desire for me? What is it that you want for me? You're going to have to wrestle. You're going to have to wrestle. Most of the time it begins with basic obedience. That's the first thing he tells you. One plus one equals two. Come back to me when you figured that one out. Read your Bible, pray, commit and connect to church, financially give, and live on mission. I'm doing that. Okay, let's graduate you. Next level. If you can't do that, that's, he's going to keep putting you back in preschool. You, that's why Christians are in preschool, because they can't do the basics. They can't, they, they're not having an, a, a, a growth in the word. They're not having a growth in prayer. They're not part of any kind of church community. They don't financially give. They don't tithe, and they don't live on mission. I give you easy. You can live on, just live on mission. I don't want to witness to my friends. Share the Facebook page. That's living on mission. Right? Share the stream. Whatever, wherever we're streaming this, share it. You're living on mission. You're taking the mission of Jesus and sharing it. God will provide for you, but his provision is for his vision. This is revelation. This will change some of you if you just all of a sudden go, whoa, I've been doing it wrong. Yeah. Shift it. Who says anything? Who will lay charge against God's elects? It's God who justifies. It's the Lord who defines you. Listen, say it with me. No one has a right to define me. No one. Paul says, it's a small thing that I am judged by you, for I do not even judge myself, but it is the Lord who judges me. No one has the right to define you positionally except Jesus. You don't even get to tell you who you are. I'm a loser. You don't get to do that. I'm unwanted. You don't get to do that. Nobody loves me. Nobody, you don't get to do that. You don't get to do that. No one has a right to define you, including you. God's the only one that defines you. And so when you realize that the, some of the dysfunction in your purpose is A, not knowing it, but some of your dysfunction is also related to not knowing who gets to define you. 
You're defining yourself in a context that is outside of Jesus. Jesus is the context of my whole life. He defines me. I'm a son of the highest. I live my life according to that decree. I'm loved on my worst day. I live my life according to that decree. Jesus wants me and is for me even when I'm against me. I live my life according to that decree. No one gets to tell me different. You get that? So sometimes dysfunction, who will bring a charge? This is one of the benefits of God's elect. No one has the right to define you. We live from and unto our identity. We understand our purpose, align our lives with his purpose in order to manifest destiny. That's what it means. Positionally, you're born again. So So if you're born again, what's your next journey? Purpose and destiny. Not purpose as you define it, purpose as he defines it. How do I get there? You're going to have to wrestle with it. First of all, go to preschool. That's what I tell people. I want God's purposes for my life. Learn your primary colors and learn remedial math. Radical five. Read your Bible, pray, commit and connect church, financially give and live on mission. Do that. I don't want to do that. Okay, well then stay in kindergarten. Because that's where you're going to stay. You'll never come into purpose. That doesn't mean God doesn't love you. doesn't mean you're not positional. If you're a Christian, you should want purpose. Should you not? Right? Am, I, am I the only one here that wants purpose? <laughs> am I the only one here that wants purpose? Does anybody out there want purpose? We have a purpose and a destiny over our lives. You were born with a mandate over your life. From the time you were born, there was a decree, and the devil has done everything in his power to keep you from it. His greatest threat is a fully formed believer that knows who they are and what their purpose is because it's an unstoppable force. That's why everything that in your life is warring against that very thing. Warring against your identity and warring against your purpose. What did Satan tempt Jesus with? His identity and his purpose. You don't need to go to the cross. You don't need to do that. Jesus knew his purpose. He's like, oh, no, no, you don't need to do that. If you are the son of God, what did he do? He challenged his identity and he challenged his purpose. And if he did it to Jesus, you don't think he's going to do it to you? You don't think he's going to challenge your identity and you don't think he's going to challenge your purpose or try to get you to short track it or circumvent it or even keep your purpose from you? Everything's about that. The believer needs to move into purpose. That's what we need to do. We need to begin to, this is how we, this is how the kingdom of God comes forth. Is when believers start understanding their purpose and begin to live towards it. Who is he who condemns? Christ had died, yea, he's risen. So you want to know how it's able, God's able to fulfill and work everything out for you? Do you know how that's possible? Because Romans 8 tells us in verse 26, it says the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. Right? And then it tells us, where is this one? In verse uh, where is it? 34, Jesus is interceding for you. So how's, why is everything going to work out? Because Jesus is interceding for you, and the Holy Spirit's interceding for you. Thank you Jesus. That's why it's all going to work out. Number one, what's Jesus doing? Jesus is declaring your position. In me, seated in heavenly places, they belong to me. Christ declares your position. The Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us, is working in our weakness. That's why there's a lot of groaning going on. He's like, oh, I got to deal with this again. Holy Spirit intercedes with us with groaning in our weaknesses. So what's the Holy Spirit doing? He's testifying to us. He's working things out, and he's also bearing witness to you as to the reasons why you got in this mess in the first place. He's interceding and praying for you on behalf of your weakness. And the other thing he's doing is he's trying to lead you into truth by getting you to understand, listen, don't always live in crisis mode, Kevin. Stop putting yourself in this position where you're always in crisis. Let me show you why you ended up here in the first place. That we're going to work it out, and, it's going to, and you're going to win in the end, but let's figure out why you ended up in this place the first time. The Holy Spirit is interceding for you. Jesus is interceding for you. This is what wins. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The ultimate question to that is no one. 
No one's separate. You're loved, man. You are loved. I don't feel loved. Doesn't matter what you feel. I don't look like I'm loved. Doesn't matter what you look like. You're loved. In Christ, you are accepted and beloved. Apart from Jesus, he is loving you from a distance. He is trying to woo you to himself. That's what this message is for, to woo you to himself, to edify, build up, and push forward the believer, and to draw the unbeliever. That's the message. Motivate the believer and draw the unbeliever. That's, that's, that's the goal. <laughs> Jude says this, right? So we're loved, right? So we need to acknowledge that we're loved, right? Say, I'm loved on my worst day. Say it like you mean it. I'm loved on my worst day. That's right. But the Bible gives us this command. So I'm going to give you, finish these two verses, and then we're going to close. Jude chapter 1 says, keep yourself in the love of God, looking for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And then verse 24 says, the one who is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless unto the day of Christ with exceeding glory. What does that mean? It means two things. Jesus isn't going to fail. That's what verse 24 means. Verse 24 means, listen, God's going to keep you and God's going to present you and you're going to have the victory that he promised you. But in the meantime, you have to keep yourself in the love of God. If you want to experience the reality that is yours, you have to keep yourself in the love of God. It doesn't mean that God stops loving you. It means that we forget that he loves us. It means that we adapt identities and attitudes and actions, and we believe all of this nonsense that testifies to ourselves that we are not loved. Do you understand that? Anybody here? you got to keep yourself in the love of God, don't you? The love of God just doesn't naturally flow to me. I don't wake up in the morning and go, woo, the love of God. I don't walk in the church building in the morning and go, woo, the love of God. It's the same thing with worship. Worship doesn't hit you. You enter it. You understand that? I'm just going to let the worship hit me. Worship isn't going to hit you. You step into it. (laughs) Yeah, let's preach it. Come on. You have to keep yourself in the love of God. God's not going to fail you. Good news. Happy day. But you need to keep yourself in the love of God. How do we do that? By the grace of the Lord Jesus, by the spiritual power moving in love. By his spirit, that's what will keep us in the love of God. In order to experience the love and experience personal victory, we got to keep ourselves there, which means we got to live beyond the weakness of your emotion. We have to develop a mentality and a discipline and a, and a, a, a strength in our life that enables us to live beyond the frailties of our emotions. Your emotions will betray you every time. Can I get a witness? If we live by emotions, it's like forget it. Forget it. If you live by the current of your life, because you rise and you fall, and you rise and you fall, don't you? Come on. I got one person. I got somebody's honest. (laughs) Doesn't matter what your life is. Your life rises and falls, but the believer goes in a direction. So we rise and we fall, and we rise and we fall, but we're moving towards something. Most of the time, unbelievers, they they, they fall and they can't recover. Believer always can recover. For every setback, Jesus has a comeback. He's got another level, no matter what. You have to remind yourself. So how do we do this? you got to remind yourself that you are loved. You have to say something. What shall we say to these things? The things I tell you to say, I say it to myself. I'm loved on my worst day. Jesus is for me and not against me. doesn't matter who loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus is always in a good mood. Jesus was always excited to see me. If God be for me, who can be against me? I'm an heir of this world and the one to come. I'm a son of the highest. I am not who I see who my past says I am. I'm not, who, I'm not who anybody, I am who God says I am. These are the things that you have got to learn to say to yourself. You gotta open your mouth. I, you, don't, you know, if you wanna say them in front of people, do it. I try, we try to train you. If you wanna just say them in the car on your way to work or in the shower, but you need to say it. You need to remind yourself who you are. 
You need to remind yourself the love that God has for you. And you got to make faith declarations. you got to begin to say what is not. God is the God who brings life to the dead and calls what is not as though it were. You need to speak life, and you need to call what is not as though it were. Give me an example. Okay, what is it? Joel 3? Let the weak say, let the weak say, I am strong. What? Let the weak say, I am strong. Let the poor say, I am rich. What is that? Calling what is not as though it were. That's what it is. We have to learn to call into our situations what God says and not what our circumstances say. Say it with me. Fear is not my prophet. Failure is not my prophet. This world is not my prophet. And my past is not my prophet. No one has a right to decree to you. No one. That's right. No one. And lastly, deal with the roots of your despair. If you find yourself constantly in despair, why is that? What is triggering your life into that arena? Why do you find yourself there? What's missing? What's wounded? You know, what lies do you believe that keep putting yourself in those places that are making you fall outside of where you don't feel loved by God? Who told you that? I'm unlovable. Who told you that? I know God loves me, but I just something in my heart tells me you believe a lie. There's an incepted lie in your heart. You have to deal with that. You won't move forward until you deal with that incepted lie. Something will trigger that lie, and it will, you'll see it. And you'll retreat. And then live a lifestyle of experiential worship. Practice the presence. You want to know the love of God? Just start worshiping. Hang out for worship. We're going to get you up out of that grave next service. Just come and just, let's just see you again. Say, I already heard you teach, Kevin. I don't need to hear you again. Right? You sound like my wife. I've heard you twice today, Kevin. I don't need to hear you again. <laughs> right. Stay for worship. Enter into it. Do something today that you've not done, maybe ever. Experience the worship. Let the worship come in. Step in. Let the worship go, go, begin. And let the love of God begin to flow over your life. If you don't know Jesus this morning, the Bible says that you are strangers to him. You are an alien to his covenants, and you are an alien to his promises. And the scripture says that you are literally without hope in the world. Ephesians chapter 2. We have a sin problem. This is what we've been talking about. So if you're here this morning, you've never given your life to Jesus. Or maybe you're far away and you're like, man, I, I think I did, but I, I just, I don't know if I can come back. You can come back. The Bible says when you know him and you leave him, you're called a backslider. You slid back. doesn't mean he doesn't love you. He says, I'm married to you, backslider. Come on back, right? You belong to me. So if you, whether you've walked away from the Lord or whether you've never ever really given your heart to him, today's your day. You need to recognize you have a sin problem and you can't solve it. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says the wages of that sin is death or eternal separation from God. We're born in sin. We're born with sin in our lives. It says the gift of God is life eternal in Jesus Christ. There's only one person, only one thing that can take away your sin, and it's Jesus Christ. And it's the offer that he makes to you. Nothing can wash away your sin except Jesus. Nothing can do anything about this hopelessness. It doesn't matter. We deal with people here all the time, and they've been through so many different religious experiences, and they've tried so many different religious experiences only to find them empty. Jesus isn't an experience. He's, he is an experience, but he's a reality. If you don't know Jesus this morning, you have an opportunity to receive him. I want to think about it. Don't think about it. This is a gift you don't think about, and this is a gift you don't turn down. There's nothing to think about here. Christ is offering you an offer to come to him. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and he has risen from the dead, you'll be saved. So how do I do that? Well, it's a simple prayer. We're going to pray here as a group. 
and you're going to pray with us. How long's the prayer? About 40 seconds. I think you can handle it, right? 40 seconds to change your eternity. 40 seconds to change everything about you. What do I have to do? Just open up your heart and pray the prayers. Yield your life and pray what we pray. And God will do the rest. He will do what he says. So we're going to pray. So pray with us. Just say it. Open your mouth. Say, dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior. I believe you came, you died, and you rose again for me. I may not understand this, but I choose to believe it. And so I open my heart to you, Jesus, and I ask you to come inside. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to restore me, and I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you, and all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you in Jesus' name. If you did that, we celebrate you, we honor you, we bless you in every, every way. Yes, come on, we can clap for that. And we're going to bless you one more time, blessing you're coming in, and we're going to end the stream, blessing you're going out. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you in every way. May he give you peace. And may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week.